Good morning. I was really encouraged this morning with uh, our brother Hyun's uh, teaching on handling temptation during first hour, uh, during your equipping hour. So if you didn't listen to that, if you weren't here, I was really encouraged by how many of you were here. But if you didn't hear that, please make sure to, 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 to listen to that. I was scribbling a bunch of notes and uh, there, was, there was lots of really good take-home questions. I would encourage you also, uh, in preparation for, for uh, next week, I'm going to continue on uh, talking about the uh, practicals of, bi- of biblical counseling. I gave part one last week, and, we'll, and I'll give part two next week. So if you missed that, uh, then, 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 then please listen to that before, uh, before next week. But thank you to uh, Brother Hyun for this, for this morning. And again, I've got I mean, really a page full of notes, so there, there was lots of uh, really challenging content there and encouraging content, too. I have recently heard, and some of you know that I am from Spokane, Washington, or, or at least we had spent the previous 12 years there before coming to Cornerstone. And maybe you would assume of, of Spokane, Washington, being on the east side of Washington, that it is a more conservative place. And I would say overall that, 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 that that's probably true. As you know, maybe it is near Idaho. There are a lot of guns there, which kind of seems often to go along with more conservative things. Uh, But like other parts of the country, and some of you may be surprised to hear this, the uh, Spokane Library is hosting a Drag Queen Story Hour. Some of you who have been listening to the news know what this Drag Queen Story Hour is, where a uh, cross-dressing man comes in and teaches, reads stories to children. So that's maybe not what some of you who've, who've been to Spokane or heard of Spokane, uh, well, would expect. Well, I recently heard of a, uh, an, an employee in one of the uh, local schools in, in, in Spokane, who's a Christian, was asked by another employee what this Christian thought of this drag queen story hour. Now, I don't know the, the whole story, and I'm not individual friends with this teacher, but the Christian responded honestly, and everything I know responded in a graceful way, but responded honestly. That happened on a Monday. On Friday, the principal called this Christian, this employee of the school, into the office and fired her for hate speech. The principal didn't even take time to clarify to see if what was reported had actually been said. The future is now. Suffering is here. If you have your Bibles open, turn to 1 Peter 4. We're going to be looking from, uh, starting in verse 12, I'm going to review from 12 to 14 from last week, and then uh, we'll uh, look at verses 15 to 16. That story of what happened in Spokane recently reveals the need that we have as 21st century Christians to be prepared to suffer for our, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. You have to be prepared to suffer for your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Peter Peter provides instruction here how to suffer as he begins the last major section of 1 Peter. And in this section, he summarizes many of the teachings of the book on on suffering. But he does so in kind of almost a bullet form way, in kind of a, a, a Cliff's Notes version on how to handle suffering. And we saw three instructions last week from verses 12 to 14. The first instruction, and all of them are... Are in your notes, I included last week's there. Instruction one is that we need to expect to be tested. We need to expect to be tested. We saw that in 1 Peter 4.12. I'll read that now. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. We should not be surprised. We shouldn't be astonished by it. We should be expecting that. Suffering is confirming it is for the purpose of testing. So instruction one, expect to be tested. Instruction two was rejoice in your suffering. We saw it in 1 Peter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. 
We saw that we should rejoice because we get to participate in the sufferings of Christ, being treated as Jesus would be treated if he were here, and participating in the kind of sufferings he endured while on earth. And we saw the incredible logic of this verse, though, that the person who rejoices because they share in the sufferings of Christ will also, at the revelation of his glory when he returns, rejoice with exultation. And that is those who will rejoice with exultation, who will be thrilled at the return of Christ, are those who suffer now. We saw the third instruction in verse 14. And we saw that it is really an application we're drawing from what Peter says there. The instruction was to be comforted by God's approval and presence. 1 Peter 4 verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You are blessed. You are approved of God. You have been accepted by God. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, if you are insulted, if you are scorned, if you are mocked for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's not a sign of God's disapproval, but of his blessing on you. And then he explains why they're blessed. Not, not, you're not you're blessed because all this bad stuff is happening to you. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And that is the evidence of blessing, is that God is at home with you. His glory rests on you. That's this language of the temple. And you, you are where God is pleased to dwell. Not abandoned by God, but in fellowship with God. This morning from verses 15 to 16 of 1 Peter 4, we're going to add two more instructions regarding suffering so that you'll be prepared to suffer. If in Spokane, Washington, you can lose your job in five days, it can definitely happen here in Orange County. And we talked last week about students who are returning to classes or college students who are going to live in, in the dorms for the first time or trying to live out your faith on a secular campus. We need to be ready to be prepared to suffer, to take these instructions seriously. Maybe it will be in your unwillingness to participate in referring to women with male pronouns or, or males with women pronouns. Maybe you'll suffer for your unwillingness to disobey your parents and what you watch or listen to, even though your friends are trying to, to persuade you. Just watch this video, mocking you because you won't. Maybe it will be, and this happened to a, a, a friend of mine. Uh, she was at a Christmas dinner, and her family, who wasn't Mormons, taunted her at, Chris, at Christmas dinner, trying to ostracize her, trying to show the foolishness of what, of what she believed, saying, well, you believe all Mormons are going to hell. So this is the persecution that she was receiving as a Christian, even though her family weren't Mormons. And that was just said in the middle of Christmas dinner, not as a conversation, but, but just to ostracize her. So the rest of her family proceeded to pour taunts and insults on her for believing what the Bible holds. Maybe that's awaiting you at a family dinner. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We need to take these instructions seriously. So here's instruction four. And, and I phrase it this way. Don't deserve your suffering. Don't deserve your suffering. Not all suffering is evidence of God's approval. He had just said, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're approved of God. But not all suffering is evidence of God's approval. Peter had previously warned the suffering saints to make sure that they were not suffering for doing evil. In 1 Peter 2, verse 16, he encouraged them not to use their freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You've, you, you, you've been given this freedom. You are to obey God. So what are you supposed to do with that obedience to God? Well, we saw in 1 Peter 2 that obedience is played out in our relationships to, as slaves to masters and, and wives to husbands and us all as citizens to the government. We're supposed to use that freedom as bond slaves of God. 1 Peter 2.20 says, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, you endure it, this finds favor with God. You know, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not a reward for you. 
It's not a, a positive in your account if, if you suffer for doing wrong, but for doing right. 1 Peter 3.9, and I'm bringing these out to say that this was a definite concern that Peter had. You can imagine Peter, and we don't even know that he's been to all these churches in Asia Minor. We don't know if he's been, yeah, to, to, to well, I think some of them, but, but to how many he's been to. We, we, we don't know if he's getting firsthand reports from all these churches or if he's just hearing rumors. But he's very concerned that what they are going through, with the suffering they're going through, is not what they've brought upon themselves. He talks about 1 Peter 3.9 about not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He knew that this was a real danger that they were facing. He knew that, they were, that it was an actual temptation for them to excuse all suffering as suffering for Christ. Well, Peter returns to that concern in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Peter probably includes these first two classifications of wrongdoing, this murderer and this thief, for, for rhetorical effect. And we don't really know. I don't think, though, Peter is really concerned that many in the church are murdering or many in the church are stealing. Now, it's possible. We don't really know. But I think he's starting out broad. None of you better be suffering as murderers or thieves, right? Anyone of you suffering as murderers or thieves? Right? You'd have the same rhetorical effect here. No, you're God's people. Well, the funnel narrows. The third word, evildoer, refers to wrongdoing in general, a lawbreaker. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, talks about how the saints had been slandered as wrongdoers or as these evildoers. Saints can't stop others from lying about them, can't stop others from slandering them, but they can make sure not to earn a, a reputation for doing what is wicked or for breaking the rules, unless, of course, it's a matter of obeying God rather than man. On, on the contrary, Peter encouraged them to be known for doing good. And that's a theme we're going to return to in verse 17. So as Christians, we must be completely above board. We must be law-abiding. As teens, we should be known as good kids. You should be the kids who don't get in trouble at school. As the kids who are made fun of by the other kids because you obey the rules. No, no critique of lawbreaker or rebel should stick to us. Now, Peter, Peter continues, and I can imagine them saying, okay, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. Lawbreaker, I may not be perfect, but I definitely try. And then it kind of takes an interesting turn here at the end of verse 15. Or a troublesome meddler. And uh, in the Greek, Peter sets that off to kind of just give it a short pause. And we kind of think that this is where, where the punch comes. This is where he's applying the most, the most stern part of the warning or, 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 or where the cut goes a little deeper. Now, it's difficult to know what this word, and it's one word in the Greek, troublesome meddler, what it, what it totally means. Because this is the first usage of it recorded in, in Greek. The word literally, in, in its part, means watching over another's affairs. Watching over another's affairs. And so the most likely interpretation is a meddler or a busybody. It's being involved in things that are none of your concern. The saints were to make sure that they weren't suffering for, as, as one, one commentator says, acting tact, tactlessly and without social graces. It's easy to imagine scenarios where a true believer could invite suffering by meddling, by expecting non-Christians to act like Christians, or back in the first century world, ex expressing disapproval when your neighbor went to the cult prostitutes 
or we're lazy, we're, and you can imagine being a slave as a Christian with other slaves and, and complaining that they aren't working hard for their master. One commentator describes that maybe it was excessive zeal in attacking pagan habits. Excessive zeal in attacking pagan habits. Uh, another commentator says that the, 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 uh, the, pro, the prohibitions of chapter 2 against meddling accords well with Peter's teaching elsewhere that Greco, the Greco-Roman social roles and boundaries are to be respected. Pastor MacArthur says, regarding other private matters that do not concern them, believers should never intrude inappropriately. And last, uh, another commentator describes it as this, censuring the behavior of outsiders on the basis of claims to a higher morality, interfering with family relationships, fomenting domestic discontent and discord, or tactless attempts at conversion. And maybe some of those strike an accord with you at some time in your Christian faith. You can imagine, uh, and perhaps you've said someone, you said this to someone, you let your children watch that show? I would never do that. Well, they don't obey God's law. They're not a Christian. Or telling someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, you're making my husband stumble because of that dress you're wearing. It's that kind of thing, going into someone's lost world and kind of invading with biblical standards. And we're going to look at what the opposite is. Or maybe uh, some of you did this in, uh, in college, writing Bible verses anonymously on people's dry erase boards, just kind of dropping truth bombs out there, you know, with like no restraint or no constraint on how it's going to be interpreted. Perhaps driving around with offensive political bumper stickers. A practical question is whether we are being meddlesome with how we evangelize. Are we honoring those we speak to, or are we shouting at them? Have you ever seen someone evangelize in such a way that you wonder if the people around you are offended by the method or the message? And if you've ever had to maybe stop someone from evangelizing you and you tell them, no, I'm really saved. I remember having to, to stop someone from giving me a Bible once. It was to the point of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going for a walk. I've, I've got my Bible here. Really. Like I had a Bible in hand. And so like, okay, so we're, we're, we're going overboard there. Like where's the offense? Or, you know, leaving a, a tract at a restaurant, I don't know how many of those waitresses get, but when there's no really nice tip attached, meddlesome. Listen to the Apostle Paul's in, in instructions regarding how the world perceives us. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now, they had a problem with uh, laziness there. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1, 1 through 3. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Which is really interesting there and, and really um, helps us direct our prayers as we pray for the government now. The Lord is sovereign over our suffering, but we want an environment where, where, where we can do our jobs and where we can raise our kids and where we have freedom to obey God's word. Now, if God chooses to take away that and pushes us into suffering, then, then, then that's his will. But we should be looking to be able to lead quiet life in godliness and dignity. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. This is, again, Paul. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's a great call for how we use social media. Now, I, I want to make sure what meddling isn't. You know, those are some examples, maybe, and maybe some of them are, are far-fetched. 
Maybe some of them you can relate to, you've seen people do. Meddling, though, is not a serious conversation where you sit down with someone to discuss ultimate truths. That is not meddling. Meddling is, is not sitting down at an appropriate time and confronting someone for the purpose of warning them to flee for refuge in Jesus Christ and pointing them to the hope of salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. That is not meddling. That is love. Now, that person might interpret that as, as meddling. But that is different from just kind of tossing out, out critiques and criticisms and kind of getting your feathers ruffled because the world isn't living like a Christian. Or because they aren't matching. And you have to start wondering, is, is it about matching up to my standard or is it matching up to God's standards? So don't meddle. Seek for a real conversation with someone. Offer to take someone out to coffee. Have someone over. Launch off of something that you've seen in your life and follow up. Not everything needs to be answered right then. It's not meddlesome to be honest in conversations. It is meddlesome to be, sen 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 to be censorious. You can't stutter if you can't say the word. To be censorious to those who aren't in God's family. To be kind of wagging your finger and go, you know, oh, it's such a shame. If you're going to suffer, don't let it be for doing evil. But don't let it be for being a nuisance. Are you confusing others with what a Christian really is because you're too busy nagging for others to conform to your worldview, your morality, your politics? It's definitely a danger of social media where righteousness is measured by what we speak against or what we don't speak against. Are, are, are you attacking people with kind of flippant, really haughty comments? Or humbly proclaiming truth in a serious, thoughtful conversation? Are you thinking before you respond, is this timely? Is this the right time to say this? Proverbs 15 verse 23, a man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. Now, that's not guaranteeing that as you sit down to have a gospel conversation, that someone's going to be like, oh, that was timely. I loved it. But that's a very different kind of suffering you're, you're, you're bringing in the context of a conversation versus just a criticism or I wish you were more like me. How often would it be better to have an actual conversation? You, you, you know, the, the, the other day someone in the office brought up this. And I overheard your, 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 your conversation. You know, I would love if you, you would like to get together and talk about that, 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 that sometime. I mean, can you just imagine how? Now, they can turn that down. And they can still report you for hate speech. But that's very different than just meddling. Not every time someone asks you if you watch a certain show, do you need to say, no, I'm a Christian. Right? That's not really communicating the gospel. But you could prayerfully come back to them and say, no, I didn't watch it, but, but, but could I tell you why I don't watch that? You know, like, not right then. Like, it's just such, an, such taking advantage of the opportunity and still being truthful without meddling. So that's Paul's next instruction. Make sure you don't deserve suffering. Make sure you're not putting yourself in a place where you're asking to be ridiculed. Let it be truly for Christ and not your manner. Instruction five is glorify God in your suffering. Glorify God in your suffering. We're going to see that in 1 Peter 4.16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, not as a meddler, as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. When Peter gives this instruction to glorify God, I don't know if you struggle with that. It can sound abstract. What does it mean to glorify God as a Christian? 
Glorify God in being a Christian. And I, I hope by God's grace that as we look at his word this morning, it'll be more clear what it means to glorify God in the midst of suffering. Peter begins in the beginning of verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffer, uh, I mean, in, in 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, and again, you can see in your New American Standard Bible that it, it, anyone suffers is in italics. It means it's not there in the original. They're just trying to smooth out the, the reading. It's, but if as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, not as meddlesome, not as an evildoer, not as a thief or a murderer, but as a Christian, the word Christian is from the Greek word Christ, obviously, but also a Latin ending. And, and that Latin ending shows group. So it means belonging to Christ. Or if you are identified with Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are of the party of Christ, like, like the, the Herodians we read of in Scripture, it's the same ending there, the Ian ending. It means followers or supporters of Herod. It doesn't really mean little Christ. I'm like, that sounds great. You've probably heard that. It would be wonderful in, in ways to be a little Christ, right? But that's not really what it means. It means to be identified as, oh, you're one of those followers of Christ. And you, and you can imagine how, how that sounded. You're, one, you're the followers of that crucified man. You're followers still of that crucified man. That, that was, that's 25 years ago. And you're still followers of him? You're, you're, you're a Christian? The word is, is Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. In Acts eleven twenty six, it says, and, and, uh, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And it's probably, we don't know for sure, but probably a term of scorn used by, used by outsiders. In Acts 26, verse 28 Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. You think you're going to get me to join your party in such a short time? It was a derogatory term of those who spoke much of Christ, who claimed Christ, who were loyal to Christ. Christians as a group in the first century world had no legal status. Like they, it wasn't a recognized religion. But neither was being one a punishable uh, of offense either. They were Christians scorned, but not yet persecuted to the extent that they would be. Peter's command is, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed. See, persecution happens so you feel shame. Persecution is about shame. It's to stop you from being what you are. Persecution is about treating someone as less than you. It's about getting to treat them really ultimately as, as, as of less value than you, as less human than you. It's why when someone's persecuted, they are maybe made fun of. They are lied about, and these lies aren't Compliments. They shame them. They're excluded from a group. They push outside of the group, which is shaming behavior. They're called into the office out of the classroom. That's shaming behavior. They're fired from your job, even though it's not because of your job performance. That's shaming behavior. They're sued or imprisoned or treated like a criminal. That's shaming behavior. They're executed. That all of that is about shame. So whether that is intentional or not, that every person does that. Their treatment is to place you outside of the group. It's to reduce your influence. It's to disqualify you, to discredit you, to label you. Narrow-minded, which is a shame word. Homophobic, which is shame to it. Chauvinistic, because you believe in biblical roles of men and women. Old-fashioned, crazy, religious zealot, religious nut, hate speech. All of those are shaming words. Bible thumper. All of those are ostracizing words. You can see why Peter gave the instruction he just did. Don't suffer as a meddler. If you're going to suffer as a Christian, then, then let it be. If you're going to be shamed, don't let it be because you deserve to be shamed. 
God is commanding you through his apostle, Peter, to not succumb to the world's shame tactics. He says, let him not be ashamed. The world will try to mute you by shaming you, by dishonoring you, by disgracing you as a Christian, as one of those who believes that Christ is the forever living and forever enthroned king, the one who must be obeyed. That is who we believe. See, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish council, sought to shame the apostles by flogging them, by treating them like criminals. The Judaizers went from city to city trying to disgrace Paul. The Gentiles tried to discredit the apostles as causing causing unrest or attacking our culture. None of that was true. It's to treat them like criminals. Now, Peter doesn't command you to stop them from saying shameful things about you. It's commanded for you not to believe the shameful things that are being said. To not be shamed. Belonging to Christ is not a dishonor. You might lose status. You might lose face before men. But their evaluation of you does not define you. Jesus used a related but a more intense Greek word in Mark 8, 38. And he warns, forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A mark of whether you have true faith in Jesus Christ is how you respond to the world's evaluation of you. When they seek to embarrass you, when they seek to shame you, how do you respond? Are you ashamed? Jesus says, if you're really mine, you're not going to be ashamed of me or my words. You, the, 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 the world is wicked. The world is adulterous. This is a sinful generation. You won't value how they esteem you. You're going to care what, how I see you, how Christ sees you. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul uses the same word. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And this is why why, why it's so important. The answer to suffering while not being meddlesome is not just to not say nothing. We can't be ashamed of the testimony. We need to be seeking opportunities where we can impart this good news in the least meddlesome way as possible. So how do we obey this command? How do we not be ashamed when they are trying to shame us? It's through truth. It's through truth. And there's any number of passages you could do this with. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is a great place to start. So remember what was true of you. Remember what was true of you. I'm going to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 now. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. That is what we should be ashamed of. We should be ashamed of who we were before Jesus Christ. What they say about us as a Christian, what an honor. But look at who we were. We know what we were like before Christ. We lived in the lust of our flesh. So, so, so we indulged in the, we, we, we were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. When you remember all that you were, and then... I mean, and, 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 and Paul did this too. I, 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 I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. He remembered who he was. But now you remember what's true of you now. We see this in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is how you deal with shame. What is true of you? 
God is rich in mercy. God loves you with great love. God has made you alive together with Christ. God has raised you up with him. God has seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is no room for shame in that. The shame is what we wore when we were his enemies. There is is nothing but honor we don't deserve. This is all of grace outpoured to us. Like, Like, you can say about me whatever you want. Look at, look at this, this, how he's honored us. And this is why Jesus says that, 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 that scary warning not to be ashamed of him. Not to be ashamed of his words. Someone who's ashamed, you've forgotten the gospel. Maybe you never knew the gospel. When, when, when you meditate on these kinds of words and someone wants to call you a Christian, Amen. I don't deserve to be. And listen, so we can think about what was true of us, what is true of us, and what will be eternally true of us. Ephesians 2.7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We have the surpassing riches of grace in Christ Jesus to us to look forward to for all eternity. This life is but a bleep. Yes, they are trying to shame us. They are actually shaming us, right? They are saying things that aren't true. They are pushing us outside. But what do we have to look forward to? It's almost here. Christ has almost returned. We remember the undeserved privilege of belonging to Christ. So, if you were to feel shame as a Christian... And that is a temptation. It is commanded here we don't. And to do so would be sin. If you are tempted to feel shame, is it because you have forgotten, forgotten the riches of his grace to us, forgotten the goodness of our master, forgotten him as the good shepherd, Forgotten him as our faithful high priest? Is it because you're not walking closely with him? That you're not drawing your nutrients from him as the vine? That that you've forgotten the privileges of belonging to him? Because you've listened to man rather than God. Now I could have added two instructions here. The first is don't be ashamed. And the second is glorify God in that name, but let's return there. So we're, we, we are glorifying God in our suffering. And so what does it mean to glorify God? What, how, do we, how do we glorify God in our suffering? And we know that God is infinitely holy and infinitely powerful and infinitely glorious. How can, well, what does it mean to glorify him? Well, to glorify and, and, and a lexicon or a, a dictionary in different language, a lexicon is, to, uh, of glorify, it's to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. Okay? To influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. When we glorify God, we want to influence the world's opinion of God to increase God's reputation. Uh, another dictionary says, to speak of someone as being unusually fine and deserving deserving of honor. Yelp is about glorifying. When you read a five-star review on Yelp, that is about glorifying a restaurant. It's about increasing someone's opinion of that restaurant. When you're at an Angels game and you see the stats of Mike Trout, that is about glorifying Mike Trout. That is about increasing everyone's opinion because of the great stats that he has. That's what we are to do in our suffering. We are to increase our opinion, the saints' opinion, and as much as possible by God's grace as he works in their lives, a lost world's opinion of God in our suffering. Now, when it says in verse 16 to glorify God in this name, that this could refer to the name of Christ or it could refer to the name of Christian. It's the, 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 the simplest take and, and what many commentators choose is that Peter has in mind the word here Christian. 
So as you are a Christian, as they are making fun of you as a Christian, how do you glorify God as a Christian? So you've been pushed outside, you've been ostracized, so how out there do you glorify God as they're seeking to shame you? And we're going to look at a bunch of passages. Quit, uh, we're going to go through them quickly here to talk about how we glorify God in our suffering. We glorify God in our suffering by suffering like Jesus. We glorify God in our suffering by suffering like Jesus suffered. 1 Peter 2.23, we've looked at this in the past. Jesus, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that is how we give a grand view of our God. How we increase others' opinion of our God in the midst of suffering is by entrusting ourselves to him. We don't have to shame them back. We don't have to get into a tit for tat. We don't have to get petty. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. That demonstrates to everyone what kind of God we serve. We glorify God by loving our enemies. Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And right there, we glorify God. We show what kind of God we serve. We serve a God who gives his goodness to the wicked and the righteous. And so how do we do that? We do the same thing by loving our enemies, by praying for those who persecute us. That's how we glorify God in the midst of suffering, by seeking to bless those who seek to shame us, by praying for them earnestly. So teens, as you go back to classes and are made fun of for being a Christian, or college students are getting ready to live in their dorms, as you suffer, get that list of names down and pray for those people. That is how we glorify God in the midst of our suffering. We glorify God when suffering like Stephen did in Acts 7, 59, verse, uh, 59 and 60. They went on sto stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. They went on, they kept doing it and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And Stephen, we saw an example of what Jesus did. He loved his enemies, and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What, what is revealed about our God there in that martyrdom of Stephen? We see God's kindness. We see God's grace. We see totally entrusting a sovereign God. We glorify God by suffering like the apostles did in Acts 5, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer, to suffer shame for his name. I just got connected with Jesus Christ. You can imagine Peter. After I disowned him, I just got connected with Jesus. I just got beaten for Jesus. And as their faith in Christ is confirmed, they leave rejoicing. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve to say his name, much less belong to him. They know that I belong to him. And that's how we glorify God. We show the value of Christ by rejoicing when we suffer for his name. We glorify God with a clear proclamation of his message. We see that in Acts 4 verse 12. As Peter boldly says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is how we glorify God in our suffering, by not shrinking back, by, 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 by not placating, by not just accepting, well, you've got your worldview and I've got mine. No, there's salvation in no other name. That's how we glorify God in our suffering. We glorify God in our suffering through our continual obedience, Later in Acts 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, this is not meddlesome speech. This, this, is, the, this is just not expecting a lost world to follow Christian standards. This is proclaiming the gospel in appropriate ways. So they continue to obedience. Does that glorify God? Yeah, we obey God. He is our sovereign. This is how we increase the world's opinion of our God. Now, they might hate what they see, 
But he is being glorified. He's being glorified as sovereign and as trustworthy. He's being glorified as loving his enemies. He's being glorified as, as, as trustworthy. He's being glorified as a savior. They glorified God by praying for boldness. And now, Lord, Acts 4.29, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. We glorify God by going to him and saying, Lord, we're suffering. We're being shamed. Can you please give us more boldness? Because we need to keep doing this. We glorify God by singing praise, Acts 16.25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. After being beaten, in stocks, chained up, they are singing. That is how we glorify God, by having rejoicing, singing hearts. We glorify God by believing his evaluation of our suffering and by waiting for his reward. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how we glorify God. We glorify God by believing our reward is coming. We glorify God by believing his evaluation of us. You are blessed. See, you see such confidence, such total putting themselves in God's hand so that they can sing and they can rejoice and they can pray and they can proclaim and they can point to Christ. We glorify God by counting our trials as joy in James 1, verses 2 and 4. We glorify God by suffering with his people. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34 is very interesting. It says, but remember the former days. So Peter's encouraging, I mean, uh, here we don't know who the author is, is encouraging the saints to not give up their confession of Christ. And, he, and he's rem reminding them of what they did. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, when you came to know Jesus Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. You were put on a stage, the Greek word means. You, you, they, they, they were throwing tomatoes at you. You were put on a stage by becoming, uh, you were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, but partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You didn't abandon those who were going through shame. Instead, in verse 34, Hebrews 10, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So the picture there is, is Christians who are being imprisoned, and instead of, of letting them be, they are putting their own lives on the line, and maybe they're, 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 sell, they're selling their property to go and minister to them, to bring them food. Or maybe as they are aligning with those in prison, you say, you, you know, that one you're shaming, you, you know, like that baker you're suing, we're not going to do that either. You know, can you imagine if all the Christian bakers said that? Now, I'm not even sure if that would be a wise counsel, but that's some of the idea here. And we need to do that. You in schools, in families, but in schools, this, this happens a lot. You know, join with those who are suffering for Christ. Don't just let them be out there. And we glorify God by waiting for his vindication. Psalm 43, verse 1, and the Psalms are full of this. We're waiting for his justice. We're entrusting ourselves to him. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. We're waiting on him. These are just a few of the actions our, this is how we put a spotlight on God. This is how we demonstrate our opinion of him. This is how we proclaim our theology. We make our theology known. The world is watching. Their power to do shaming things and, 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 and the frequency of their shaming words has increased. They are bringing lawsuits. They are firing Christians. They are accusing us of hate speech. They may soon report us to the authorities for our parenting, even when no laws have been broken. But we do not have to be ashamed. In fact, Peter commands that we must not be ashamed. 
Instead, we must glorify God when we suffer as Christians by our waiting upon him and by our praying to him and by our singing to him and by our proclaiming him and by our commitment to his people and by our loving our enemies and by our trusting ourselves to him who judges justly. How long is it before your private conversation is made public? We just saw that with someone who works in a school. How long before your heartfelt, humble, serious conversation, whether about children cross-dressing, about abortion, about library drag time, about salvation in Christ alone, how long before that becomes public? Will the shame of the shaking heads, the reprimand from human resources, the slander from your peers cause you to crumple in shame? Or will you glorify God in that name, Christian? Will you glorify God as a follower of Christ? Will you glorify God that you are committed to the living and exalted King of the universe? Will you glorify God as a Christian? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, serious instruction. Your people have always suffered, some in more countries more than others, some in more families than others, some in more schools or even parts of this country than, than others. Lord, we thank you, Father, for how you are wise and even uh, speaking to a dear brother this, this week and the potential he has uh, to suffer not for being meddlesome, but because of the sovereign circumstances you have placed him in and making these kinds of choices. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to take your instruction seriously. Help us to not be known as evildoers in any way, but particularly be guarded of meddlesome and to be wise in our speech and the kinds of things we speak about and when we speak about them. I pray, Father, that you would help us to do the harder thing and to seek out, out conversations. And we still live in, in a culture where that's at least uh, respected. It may not be, 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 be welcomed. It may be offensive. Uh, but at least that's done in a tactful way. Help us, Lord, to take the opportunities that you, you have clearly given us to make you known, to proclaim you with boldness, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would glorify you in the name of Christian. Father, help us to demonstrate our, our total reliance upon you. Help us to not be ashamed. In fact, guard our hearts from a shame. In fact, there's this, 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 this huge warning that, the, that those who, uh, who will not confess Christ, those who shirk back, don't belong to you. So Lord, help us to have uh, the boldness and wisdom when, to, when and how to speak up, Lord, and when and how uh, to sing joyfully and to look forward to your reward and glorify you in that way and glorify you by loving our, our enemies. So, Father, as we are, are, are brought into this, this conflict, help us not uh, to fear shame, help us to refuse to be ashamed, and help us instead to see the opportunity that we really aren't the ones being made a spectacle of. Maybe this is the being worthy of suffering for your name. It's, it's really about your son. So help us just to see the incredible privilege we can never deserve. Help us to remember who we are, the great grace that you've given us in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.